Welcome all you wiretappers back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have a really interesting, a little bit different show. You know, we usually deal with organized crime. Well, this is, this isn't your mafia style organized crime, but it's, it's a, a crime. We're talking to talk about a crime or series of crimes that I know I worked on myself as part of a surveillance team and, and, and doing some investigation of, and it's, it's the serial killings of, uh, at-risk, vulnerable women and primarily street prostitutes or other women who are drug, drug addicts and on the streets a lot. And they're, they're always at risk to put themselves in bad situations. And there's bad people out there that, that will uh, victimize them and get away with it because they're kind of like in society, a little bit like throwaway people. And, and so when I learned about uh, Jody's book, Hooker Avenue, there it is, folks. And you can see, you see her. Jody, hey, how you doing? Good hey, Gary, here. how are you? Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> so I always feel funny talking about somebody or talking about what I'm doing and, and you just sit there, or, you know, the guests, you just sit there and watch it. But anyhow, so it's great to have you here. Uh, what I want to know about, of course, as we talked before, is about how you learned about the police procedures and, and when you wrote that book, because I know you try to get it accurate. I've read enough of that to know that you try real hard to get it, the police procedures accurate and, and the community reaction to these kinds of series of crimes. And, and, and it's always interesting, I think. And so I just like to have interesting shows about crime and not always the mafia. So, Jody, tell us a little bit about how you got to write Hooker Avenue. Where did you come from? I look at your career and it's it's uh, you're a renaissance woman. <laughs> so uh, tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I've been an attorney for 40 years and I have a general practice. But in addition to being an attorney, um, as you know, I'm now a crime writer. I've been doing that for about uh, 10 or 15 years. Before that, I wrote a series on um, the theater, the Broadway guides. They're called Seats New York. And I inherited that from my dad. My dad started, his first book came out in 1999. And it's, you know, it's got all the seating charts, where to get tickets, how to get free tickets. I mean, anything you want to know about the Metropolitan New York uh, theaters. And it was a hit for their for the publishing company, which is Hal Leonard Publishing. And my father passed away quite unexpectedly. So the company came to me and asked me if I was interested in doing these guides. So I produced three theater guides. And as I was doing that, I knew that I wanted to write crime fiction. And it was something even as an attorney back in back when I got graduated from law school in 1979, I knew that I wanted to do it. And part of it was that I live in a community that's very small. Everyone knows each other, but we, for some reason, Poughkeepsie has had the history of very bizarre crimes. <laughs> the first one that struck home was the basis for my first book, which is called The Midnight Call. And it's inspired by a high school teacher of mine who committed murder. He, wow. I came home from law school, opened the Poughkeepsie Journal, and it, the headline was, teacher teacher charged in, in teen's death. And we found out that he had a psychotic breakdown and he murdered a kid who was trespassing through his yard. So that was the basis of my first book, you know, a teacher murdering a teen. Hooker Avenue, which was just released, is also fell on my front door, literally. Because in 1995, my business partner and I purchased a property, um, a bus an office building downtown that had been abandoned. And we bought it from the bank. It had, we didn't know it, but it had become a congregation place 
for sex workers. And they would literally sit on our front steps. They would solicit their clients and also solicit our clients as we were, they were trying to get in to see us. They would take these women across the street to an abandoned parking lot, do their business, and then come back. So we kept calling the police. So we kept saying, look, we've got this problem. Can you help us? And for a while, this was in 1995. Yeah. Over time, Gary, we saw these women disappearing. And we thought that, oh, great, the police are you know, moving these gals along. Well, we discovered on September 1st in 1998 that a serial killer had been literally stopping in front of our office or in the vicinity, soliciting these women, taking them back to his house, and these women were never seen seen or heard from again. So this was a story that really, as you can see, struck home to me. And, you know, if you look, we learned about the killer. His name was Kendall Francois. And he was, in his, in his, I think he was 27 years old, army veteran, and a nice, quiet guy. He was, he was a big guy. He weighed like 250, 300 pounds, was six foot four. This guy was a giant. And I spoke to somebody today who was in class with this guy. I mean, his family and he were chameleons. They moved through the community. And, you know, I knew his dentist. I knew, I mean, he lived four, he lived four blocks from me. Wow. <laughs> and all of this Crazy. was happening literally on my front steps and in my backyard. So what I decided to do was I felt that I wanted to tell the story about these women. And I wanted to, as you say, expose the fact that these vulnerable women, women who at every day put their lives at risk by the very nature of their business, they, um, I wanted to give them a voice and tell their story in connection with this serial killer. So the first thing I did was I, um, I went to the county clerk's office and I followed the trial because it was happening literally two blocks from my office. So I would follow the trial. I would go to some of the hearings. I would go through the court records. Um, I would go through the Poughkeepsie Journal and the archives and gather all of the all of the information. Um, what I tried to do, though, is I really tried to compartmentalize it because I didn't want to, um, as you say, um, retell the story. I wanted to take the essence of these crimes and then insert my characters who are part of a series into these stories to say what would happen if my protagonist Jesse Martin and Detective Ebony Jones were faced with this kind of cold case situation. So I gathered all of the criminal records and then as I said I attended um, the final plea hearing for this case and I was able to actually sit in the court with the serial killer being you know three three yards away from me and the families of all of these women pleading to the judge to say, you know, really, uh, you know, give this guy the maximum, give him the maximum. So, I mean, these women pleaded that these were their wives, their mothers, their sisters, their grandmothers, their daughters. I mean, it was really heart-wrenching to hear this them tell their stories about these women who had dropped off the charts, mm-hmm. literally dropped out of society. And, you know, the killer just stood there. I mean, totally emotionless. It was really a heart wrenching situation. Well, that's uh, uh, and those cases, like I told you before, uh, I was assigned to work uh, 
like surveillance and, and go out and watch a particular area where street prostitutes seem to be disappearing. And, and then sometimes their bodies would pop up and, and then the detectives, I was surveillance mainly, and detectives would start looking into them and they'd find, uh, you know, the variety of people that maybe could have killed them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you would find that uh, their pimp had killed them and, uh, or uh, some, it was some drug deal went down and they died in that, but then you'll have some others that are unsolved. And so from a police viewpoint, then uh, people are saying, you know, this is a serial killer here at work. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the cops in a minute will say, no, that's not a serial killer. I'll tell you right now, we want to say that's not a serial killer because a ser- serial killer gets hard and is really hard to solve many times. And and so let's just say, you know, we, we know that this one was killed by this person that was killed that person. And, and then, you know, there's no serial killer. Did you run into any of that with a police investigation on that? Did they run into any of that? Well, um, in these in these cases, the disappearances occurred from 1996 to 1998. Yeah, and pretty. part of the problem was, Gary, that they all weren't in the city of Poughkeepsie. These women were from all over the Hudson Valley. Oh, wow. So their families were reporting them as missing. But nothing was being done by the municipalities to investigate and find these people over a period of two years. So finally, the, uh, the get, all of the families got together and they went to the district attorney for the county and said, look, you have to create a task force. There's something going on here. We really need to fo- you really need to find out what it was. And like you mentioned, they created this task force. They brought in the FBI. They brought in the New York State Bureau of Criminal Investigation. They literally had no leads. Yeah. They started this in August of 1998. And the way the killer was found was really it was really kind of circumstantial. Because one woman escaped from his clutches and Uh she ended up at the local Sunoco station. The owner of the Sunoco station called the police and said, look, this woman's been beaten up. She's like lying here, you know, at my station. We need you to investigate. So she fingered the the serial killer or who they thought was her attacker. Yeah. They brought him in. They read they brought him in for questioning he admitted attacking this particular gal and he out of the blue sky, he admitted that he killed four women. Oh, they got lucky. (laughs) They got very lucky. They didn't expect it. They were totally shocked. I'd spoken to the district attorney who was in the room with him during this questioning. And she said that when they, when he dropped that bombshell, they all looked at each other. They didn't know what to do. I bet. bet. So they, obviously they got a search warrant. They searched his house and they found eight bodies. It took him 28 days to exhume eight bodies. And they found them in his basement and in his attic. And the the craziest thing was that the house smelled. I mean, even when you were outside of the house. (laughs) You could smell it. You could smell it. And he he lived with his parents and his sister. And he kept saying, oh, it's dead raccoons. You know, it's dead rats. It's animals. I mean, they he had created this fiction that his family had been swept up in. So the whole thing was really interesting because I was able to, you know, interview the the district attorney, as I mentioned. Um, I was able to talk to the police who were investigating the case. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to, since 
I was, I didn't insert myself in the crime, but I was able to act like a journalist in a way yeah. and do the investigation for the background, you know, for my case. Cool. Yeah. And it wasn't 20 years ago that it all happened too. It was all fresh in everybody's mind. So you can exactly. really get, get some good information. What about, uh, did, did you go out and interview other active sex workers during this time to get a more of a feel for what that life was like and where they came from? Or, or did you just stick with the families or did you interview? I the stuck families? with the families. Okay. Yeah. I stuck with the families. And, and also I didn't want to, the families to think that I was taking advantage yeah. of, the situation. Yeah. So in my book, the, the characters who are the women who've disappeared bear no resemblance to any of the actual victims. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. That's always a danger there. Even uh, in mob books, people, family members will get bad thinking you're making money, even though you're not making any money to speak of, you're right. making money off of their relatives. So uh, yeah, that's always a, I uh, did receive a complaint from oh, yeah. when the book was first out, the cousin of, the gal that escaped wrote me an email and she was irate with me. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently they also contacted uh, my publicist and complained, yeah. but I, it isn't their story. You know, I yeah. mean, yeah. it is, but it isn't, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not retelling the story of these women. Yeah. Just kind of the, the situation, which is, as I said, it, it happens all throughout the United States, the green river killer. Uh, uh, there's been others. Uh, I'm surprised this one didn't, didn't really capture the attention of the national media that I remember. I mean, it's not, I could have missed it, I guess, during that time, but. Well, it, actually it, it, it was in the New York times. I yeah. mean, it was, it was a national story. And part of the reason that it was a national story because it happened, uh, the, the court proceedings came to a head in 2000. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was a sunset provision on the capital, the capital punishment crimes here in New York. Oh. So this so everybody wanted this guy to obviously be, uh, you know, they, they wanted capital punishment yeah. for this guy. But what happened was literally on this day that the that the capital punishment law was sunsetting, the attorneys for Francois rushed into court, made an offer of a plea. Mm -hmm. And ask yeah. the judge to accept the plea. Yeah. Now, in New York, the judge can either accept the plea or let the district attorney go ahead, present their case and ask mm -hmm. for capital punishment. So this case, the, the, the judge, the judge rejected the plea. And this case went all the way up to our Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals held that Judge Dolan did have the right to let the district attorney go ahead and prosecute the case. He was not mandated to accept this plea. Really? Eventually, the case was settled um, because they didn't really want to drag the families you yeah. know, through all of the emotional terror. And they didn't want the publicity and they didn't want to bear the expense. So Kendall Francois was ultimately um, ultimately pled guilty to murder one. Eight counts of murder one, eight counts of murder two, and then also um, assault and battery for this woman who, you know, who oh, he that got had. away. Yeah, right. So he spent he spent this, his life in jail or he was sentenced to spend his life in jail. But then in 2014, um, he, he died. Mm -hmm. And we think that he died of AIDS. There was nothing in the paper. No one knows how he died. But um, he, you know, that's that's what happened. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He kind of like, uh, he, he was like John Wayne Gacy or we had a, a local guy here in Kansas city named Bob Burdell and these were young men. 
Yeah. And, and Gacy, of course, did the same thing, hid the bodies in the house. <laughs> Our guy in Kansas City, Berdella, he he cut the bodies up and put them in the trash for the trash man to pick up. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, there's a lot of horrid things out there in this world, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of crazy, dangerous people. And and that was this is one of them here. Did you uh, did you try to reach out to him? Did you try to get him to talk to you? No, I didn't. Because when I write my books, I never want to try to get into the mind of the killer. Okay. I never, I never write from that perspective. What I do is I always write from three points of view. One is like the district attorney. Yeah. Another is the detective, and the third is a criminal defense attorney, because they, each one of them, um, can give their impressions. Yeah. Of the killer, you know, and they're the ones who actually the reader is the one who puts the pieces of the puzzle together after reading it from the three different perspectives. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that <coughs> drew me to this case was the fact that um, <coughs> especially now there's really an inequity. And I'm sure you've seen it in the types of cases that get missing persons cases oh, yeah. pursued. <laughs> Yeah. You know, if you're the wife of a, you know, a judge or a lawyer or a doctor, <laughs> you know, they'll the police go all out to yeah. try to find people. If you're, as you say, a marginalized person, a, a marginalized person, or if you are um, a minority mm-hmm. or if you're a child, sometimes you find that the, you know, the, the resources are not being you know, are not being used to try to find people. Yeah, that's true. They, they, there are no resources hardly available for missing persons units in any police department. They just will have a minimal kind of, it's kind of a place that they send people that really aren't that good at cops. Anyhow, they've got that good at detectives <laughs> and uh, pardon me. I know, you know there's great missing persons investigators out there. I apologize to you, but there's a lot of bad ones too. And, and people that just putting in their time. So you got, you don't have that. The hot shots are in the homicide unit, the robbery unit and want to go to the attack units and places like that. So, so then the homicide units, you know, they're kind of the ones that, that, are suited for this, but they're tied up on murders because you got one murder after another right. in the big cities. So it, it, and when there's not for sure a murder, then it comes down to, you know, some many times, like you say, sad, but true who it is, how much political pressure can, can be brought on upper management on a police department. And, and uh, so people with money got some, can put some political pressure on them. People without money can't. And plus, People without money live kind of more vulnerable lives too, and put uh, in situations where bad things can happen to them. And, and so cops make this uh, uh, not a, uh, not a very skillful way to think, but you put a a value judgment on a person. So you value them less. Right. And and that's so common. And, and yeah, I've done it myself. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, I'm a human being, but that's, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it is. So, it, it's a tough one. It's always a tough one when you have a case like this. Well, you know, if you look at the Gabby Petito case, which is recently in the news, yeah, I mean, she got a lot of, of press because she was attractive and she was an yeah. Instagrammer yeah. and you know, she was from a nice family. And that's where there's a real inequity because these women aren't, you know, don't have that. Right. You know, they're drug addicts. And, and also they're the type of people that 
A, are usually estranged from their families. Yeah. You know, so their families really don't know whether or not where these women are half the time. Yeah. You know, it's only after a long period of time that their families report them missing when they haven't yeah. heard from them for years. So it's there's really um, a gap in the type of cases, as you say. And I understand police have to make a value judgment. Yeah. And it's, it's also I think that there aren't enough officers who are dedicated to missing persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's. That- you know, there's a shortage of police in every department. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah, I know. There's there's more than enough crime to go around. It seems like there's more and more all the time. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. I know <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough job. There's a, there's, there, a you're, you're literary. There's, isn't there like a, a famous saying about uh, about woe to the policeman. I can't remember what it is now, but there's some saying about that. The, the beleaguered policeman is always catching hell about <laughs> something. I can't remember what it is now. Probably Shakespeare, but, but I didn't have policemen back that far. It's probably Dickens, somebody like that. <laughs> Anyhow, so, uh, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Now, did you, uh, you your uh, police officer, uh, Detective Ebony, uh, uh, was that based on a, a, a real person? No, uh, she she appeared in a cameo in the first book. Okay. And I wanted to develop a character who had been friends with my other protagonist, Jesse Martin, to create a tension in the relationship between these two women. Okay. And I wanted to have two women who were professional. There was professional conflicts, personal conflicts to really drive, drive this book. Yeah. And the glue that holds them together is my the sex worker that Jesse finds uh, in this ditch. Yeah. And she is the one who is the key to unlocking the cold cases that the detective is investigating. Yeah. So you have this real triangular relationship between these women. And it's, it really is. It's it's a plot driven book. It's a character driven book. But um it's not based upon any true character. I have a friend who's a, who, he's a retired sergeant um, in the town of Poughkeepsie Police Department. So whenever I have procedural questions, yeah. I ask him. Yeah, you know? I've been that guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and one thing that was really interesting about this book was that one of the first scenes has a 911 call. And I wanted to make sure that I got that correct. I always try to make sure whenever I have a book and I'm doing aspects of the law or aspects of criminal procedure that I don't understand, that I go directly to the source. So I was able to go into our 911 center Uh. here in Dutchess County and observe them. And I mean, these people, you know, you have to give them kudos. They are under pressure. Every single second they are listening and there's a script they have to follow. You know, they can't just say, hi, you're having a good day. I mean, it's a very careful script so that if the call is disconnected, they know immediately where the problems are. So between, you know, talking to the police, talking to 911, I spoke to medical experts uh, related to the case, Mm -hmm. mental health experts. Attorneys with the uh, with the uh, state of New York mental health uh, division. So, I mean, I'm really careful about uh, giving information to my readers because I want them to know what they're getting is accurate. You know, you understand. You appreciate that. I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate that. And people know they know if it's accurate or not accurate. Uh, And I think it makes your makes your book more interesting and and people will tell other people about it. You know, that interest, you know, they'll get that, that this is real. 
because the real stuff is more interesting than what somebody dreams up. Even when it seems mundane, hey. it's not. It's not. Hey. It's, all right. Well, Jody Millman, that's uh, <laughs> it's been a great interview and it's an interesting book. And, and guys, you can see the book in her background and, and there it is there. Uh, I recommend you get it. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, Jody. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. People can they want to know more about the true crimes. They can go to my website, which uh. is www.jodemillman.com. Um, the book is available on Amazon. I encourage people to go to their independent bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> to get it. They can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Goodreads. I'm on them all. Okay. Um, and I really appreciate you having me here today. It was really cool to talk about the procedure behind the book. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I, I was looking forward to that myself when I thought, started thinking about having you on. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jody. Thanks, Gary. Have a great day and happy right, Father's Day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Well, folks, that was most interesting. I, you know, talking, you know, you, you want to, I always want to know the story behind the story of like these fictional books and, and TV producers or the showrunners and the writers are the same way. They reach out to people like me and people like uh, her friend there in Poughkeepsie and, and they go out and they, the good ones really try to find how these investigations develop and, and what are the, what are the people like that work on these cases? And, and, and in her case, she found out a lot more about the victims in, in these crimes by talking to the family members, because the victims are all dead, but one, and I don't think the one was, well, you, when you got an active case, you don't really try to get into it uh, personally. So it's uh, it was a great show. I, I really appreciate her coming on. Uh, might give that book a shot, Hooker Avenue. Here's another one. Uh, I advise a guy on this one and uh, Dan Flanagan on Lonesome Roads. And, and he gets into a little bit of mob stuff. It's, it's a fictional book. It's, it's an interesting book. He's a local guy here in Kansas City. And, and uh, I, I've had many, uh, several hours of coffees with him uh, just talking about the mob and how we did things and <clears throat> how cases might work. And, and I even hooked him up with my friend, uh, uh, Kate, who was uh, 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 the gal, Kate, the gal that went on the motorcycle, couple of the motorcycle trips with me. If you've been on my YouTube and seen my mob tours uh, and she was retired from the canine unit and he wanted to use a dog in this and, and a canine dog. And so he wanted to know all about the canine police canine dogs and how that works. So it's uh it's interesting to find out a little bit about these authors and, and how they work. And, and like I said, TV shows are the same one. Every one of the good mob series or mob movie. If you've just seen the, uh, the offer, the background behind the, the Godfather, how they, you know, they were actually hooked up with the mob while they were making it. And, and uh, they, uh, they did a lot of research into how the mob works and, and borrowed from a lot of real deal mob stories, if you remember. So the, uh, the, the, the story behind the fiction that we enjoy is interesting as well as the infiction and <laughs> the story behind the fiction that we enjoy is just as interesting sometimes as the fiction itself. Uh, don't forget to look out for motorcycles when you're out there. Uh, this is going to be out way after this, but I am going to, or I, by this time, if I'm still here in August, when this will probably come out, this is June. I'm going to do a motorcycle race track day 
at Heartland Motorsports Track over in Topeka Sunday, a day after tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to learn how to ride like a, a real motorcycle racer. Uh, I'll be in the novice uh, class, of course. Uh, it looks like it'll be fun. Thanks a lot, folks.